The story details how that happened. It details how the gospel just turned her whole life upside down and changed everything that she did not want to be changed. And it happened through the faithful and patient friendship and witness of an ordinary pastor and his wife. It began with a letter and then continued on through them having her and her partner over for dinner several times. And the reason this story has made its rounds since 2013 is because it seems so surprising, doesn't it? She represented what many conservative Christians despise. A liberal, one who doesn't embrace biblical morality for marriage and sexuality. How is it that she, of all people, would bow down in humility and repentance before the Lord and put her faith in Jesus Christ. But history is full of stories like hers, isn't it? Like the slave trader, John Newton, who treated human beings like they were animals, who came to faith and wrote, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. Or the story of the determined atheist named C.S. Lewis who became a Christian and wrote books that so many of us have treasured and have caused us to grow in our own faith and relationship with Christ. And there are more stories like these of people who didn't become popular after their own conversion. Perhaps people you know who you wouldn't have dreamed they would come to faith and then somehow it happens. Seems like there was no way they would become Christians, and then somehow, surprisingly, they did. But why are these stories so surprising to us? Why is it so unexpected? Is it that God is acting in surprising ways? Is it that we didn't know He was like this? Are we surprised at the compassion of God on sinners? Are we surprised at the mercy of God? Are we surprised at the grace of God to save those who have rebelled against Him? Well, it turns out our surprise doesn't come from an inconsistency in God. This is who God is. He is a God of compassion. He is a God full of grace and mercy ready to pour out His Spirit on all kinds of people, to pour out His favor on all kinds of people, all of whom are, who are desperate sinners in need of salvation. Our surprise then must come from our own inconsistencies. Sure, He saved us. He, sa- he saved me. Why wouldn't He want to save me? We have so much to offer. Sure, we do bad things occasionally. We did bad things before we came to faith in Christ, but overall we were decent citizens. We were pretty good people, but wow, to save a sinner like Rosaria Butterfield. That is a surprising work of grace. Well, one challenge of the book of Jonah is that we might become aware of some of our blind spots, of our own weakness and sinfulness of our own desperation before God. 
it also is that we might desire and expect and rejoice in the salvation of all kinds of sinners. Maybe the amazing grace of God that saves us means can save just about anybody. And maybe we'll still be in awe at His amazing grace without necessarily being surprised at it. So let's look at our passage together in Jonah 4, 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor? Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Father, as we come to your word and hear it read and proclaimed, pray that you would do your work in in us through it that you would empower the preaching of your word by your Holy Spirit, that you would enable us to hear your word, not just with our ears, but with our inward being, with all that we are, and that we would seek then to obey for your glory. This is the work of God in us. So do it, we pray. Amen. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, but he rebels and runs the other way. But the Lord would have none of this rebellion. God's will cannot be thwarted by anything or anyone. So the Lord uses a storm to bring Jonah to despair, almost to the point of death. And then he commands a fish. He appoints a fish to remind Jonah of God's absolute sovereignty and of his mercy. Since there's no use running from God... Jonah submits to him and then goes and preaches to Nineveh. And the results are astounding. Nineveh repents eagerly and immediately. It's like they were waiting for someone to tell the word of the Lord to them, to call them out for their sin. They repent in sackcloth and ashes. Now notice the words in chapter 3, verse 10. 
Evil and disaster are actually the same word there. Nineveh repents of their evil, and God relents of the evil that he had intended to them. Now that word refers to the wickedness of Nineveh and to the judgment of God. So nothing wicked or sinful in God. But the same word is used again in, ch- in verse 1 of chapter 4 to describe how Jonah feels about what happened. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah, and he was angry. He's angry that Nineveh repents of their sins, and he's angry how God relented of his judgment against them. Now we finally get to the reason why Jonah runs away from God in the first place. Jonah prays to the Lord again. Isn't this exactly what I said would happen? This is why I ran immediately away from you. And his next sentence tells us why. But it makes absolutely no sense as a reason. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. I knew that you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I knew that you are one who relents from disaster, evil, that same word. Now as we saw last week, this phrase is about the character of God. And it's found in Exodus 34 when the Lord proclaims his name to Moses. Uh, Moses desires to see his glory. God says, you cannot see my face, but I'll show you a part of my glory. And then he proclaims his name. And these are the the words that we, we see. The Lord is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But we see even clearer connection in Joel 2 verse 13. As a reason there for God's people to return to him. He calls them to repentance. And he says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. This is what Nineveh actually did. Return to the Lord your God for. Here's the reason you should return to the Lord your God. Any of you who are in sin, rebelling against the Lord, return to the Lord for he is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger abounding in steadfast love, and he relents from disaster. The disaster you deserve for your sin against him. In Joel 2, the character of God is what gives God's people confidence that if they will turn back from their idolatry, from their sins, he will turn from judgment and leave a blessing instead. And we have this confidence in a greater way. For he has said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can be sure that when you forsake your sin and turn back to the Lord, he will receive you with mercy and grace. Not because of anything inside of you. Not because of your goodness. Not because of the greatness or the depths of your own sorrow or penitence. But because this is the very character of God. This is who he is. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now God had demonstrated this throughout history with his people. That this is who he was. And Jonah had no problem with that part of it. He had no problem that God was merciful and gracious, that he was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
His problem here was with the object of God's mercy and grace. With those God was giving his mercy and grace. I don't know if you can imagine it, but Jonah was angry that God would have mercy on those people he most despised. They were not God's people. They were enemies of God's people. In Micah and in Nahum, God pronounces judgment on Assyria. These same sorts of people. They did not deserve mercy. They deserved justice for their sins against God. But then again, maybe you can imagine it. Despite our best efforts, we all have our own blind spots. Perhaps we all have people that we inwardly despise. Maybe we don't even recognize it in day-to-day lives. Maybe we, can't, maybe we can't even put a finger on those whom we sinfully despise. The bully who ruthlessly picks on vulnerable kids at school. I was picked on at school. I remember being angry that someone would treat me in that way. The self-admitted racist who thinks people who have white skin are better than other people. The womanizer, the liberal, the fundamentalist. This president, the last president. The school shooter. The terrorist. The list goes on and on. Maybe, maybe though, as you consider even those sorts of people... You, you don't have a hatred against them. You don't, you don't despise them as such. And so you're having a hard time discovering who, it is, who is it that I might despise in this way. Well, maybe it has to be personal for you. Someone who took something dear from you. Someone who hurt you and wronged you. And you can't imagine. Maybe you can't imagine forgiving them. Or think about the, school, the recent school shooting. I, I saw some of the news where parents were rightfully angry. Wouldn't you be angry? Oh, I'd be so angry. And, and then what would it look like, what would it look like then for God to grant repentance for such a person who has harmed us in such a terrible way? For the abortionist, what would it look for God to bring them to repentance. Well, in one sense, we'd be glad for all the babies that would be saved. But then, where's justice for the hundreds, the thousands of babies that this person has killed? Is there no justice for them? This is some of the tension in the book of Jonah. Where is God's justice in the midst of His mercy? What do we do when God grants the one we most despise repentance and faith? In Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about fake repentance, kind of a shallow just cover, a manipulation to avoid judgment. I'm talking about genuine spirit moved repentance, humility before God Almighty. When one is broken over his sin and humbled before the Lord and comes to faith in Jesus, it would do us well to think about those we despise and to think. Although it might be right to have righteous anger against the wicked things they do, how would I respond if God granted repentance to that one? Well, Jonah is so mad, he asks the Lord to take his life from him. It's better to die than to live, Jonah says. 
interestingly enough, and we've made a few uh, comparisons and contrasts between Jonah and the prophet Elijah. Right? Jonah was called to go to Nineveh and he ran the other way. Elijah was called by the Lord and he immediately obeys. Well, interestingly, Elijah makes this same request in 1 Kings 19. He has fulfilled his duty as a prophet, but then he gets afraid. He's afraid of his enemies. And so he runs away in fear. And in his humility, he thinks he has failed as a prophet. That's why he makes this request. But Jonah makes a request in self-righteousness, in self-righteous anger. I've done my job. Now you've had mercy. Now just take my life from me. Notice what the Lord asks him in verse 4, though. Do you do well to be angry? Are you doing good to be angry? Do you have a right to be angry? In verse 5, we have a change of scenery. Jonah goes out to the east of the city, and he makes a little shelter for himself. He sits under its shade to wait and see what will become of the city. And Jonah doesn't realize it, but God has a little object lesson for him. God appoints a plant. We see God's sovereignty throughout this. He appoints a plant to grow up over Jonah to give him shade. Verse 6 says it was to save him from his discomfort, his disaster, his evil, that same word. And Jonah was exceedingly glad about the plant. Notice the contrast in how Jonah feels about the forgiveness of Nineveh and how exceedingly glad he is for the plant that gave him temporary shade. But God appoints a worm to wither the plant. And then God appoints a scorching east wind to beat down on Jonah so that he becomes faint. Now, when it comes to the, the suffering he was going through, maybe we are so spoiled we don't understand the intensity of his suffering there. We get two degrees too hot, so we turn the thermostat down a little. Problem solved. I remember sitting on a hot roof in the middle of the summer with my stepdad. We were roofing, and he would say, oh, that breeze feels so good. And I'm like, what breeze are you talking about? It feels horrible up here. My energy was completely sapped. I was drained. I just felt like laying there and going to sleep. Jonah, his strength is completely sapped. He is ready to lay down and die. And in the midst of Jonah's suffering... He says again, it's better for me to die than to live. But like any good teacher with an erring child, God redirects Jonah's attention. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And let me stop for a second. We've probably already been there. You get so worked up, you get so angry about something, and you stop paying attention, and you don't even realize that someone is expertly setting a trap for you. To use your own words against you. To somehow try to make you see your own inconsistencies. See your loved ones see your hypocrisy better than you do. Your loved ones see your inconsistencies better than you do. They see your blind spots better than you do. And if they really love you, sometimes they'll set a trap for you. So that you can begin to see what they see. God sets Jonah up, and Jonah doesn't realize it. 
do you do well to be angry for the plant, Jonah? And he responds, yes, I do well to be angry. There's the trap. He took the bait. He doubles down on it, angry enough to die. And these are the last words we hear from Jonah in this book. Takes the bait. But God doesn't trap Jonah in order to judge him here, but rather to teach him a lesson and to teach us as well. The book began with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah and it ends with the word of the Lord. At first he commands, now he questions. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Jonah pitied the plant because of what it could do for him. It could provide him some temporary comfort. It could give him a little bit of joy in the midst of his anger. It could make his life a little more bearable. But Nineveh means nothing to him. Wipe them off the face of the earth. No skin off Jonah's back. Now, Jonah's own self-interest here reflects that very selfishness that had come about in Israel, the covenant people of God. They had become interested only in their own welfare. They became self-centered and self-righteous. They had no concern for the nations, for those who were different than them, for those who were outside of the people of God. There's some good lessons for us there, brothers and sisters. But God had made Nineveh. He had nourished Nineveh. He had made each individual person in Nineveh. Forming their inward parts. Knitting them together in their mother's wombs. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Each one in the image of God. Nineveh foreshadows the time when God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh, Jew and Gentile. The next book of the Bible, the prophet Micah, is linked to Jonah and Nahum in that they deal, all of them, with the nation of Assyria. But in Micah, the Lord pronounces judgment on His own people and calls them to repentance, and then He promises salvation for His people. But the interesting thing is, he promises salvation not just for the ethnic people of Israel, but for all his people, people from all nations, from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Turn over a few pages and look at Micah 4, verses 1 through 2. Ordinarily, you couldn't find it, but it's the very next book over, so there it is. Micah 4, verses 1 and 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isn't this the very thing we see in Jonah? The word of the Lord coming out of Jerusalem to these other peoples, to this other nation. What we have here is not 
a self-interested, self-righteous Israel, but the word of the Lord pouring out from Jerusalem. And then the nations streaming into the mountain of the house of the Lord. God has made the people of Nineveh in his own image. He has made all people in his own image. This is the truth that we rejoice in concerning those who are yet born. Right? That they are precious in his sight because they are made in God's image. Just like the school, bu- school bully. Just like the womanizer and the liberal and the fundamentalist and the terrorist and the school shooter and the abortionist made in the image of God. And should God not have mercy on whom he desires and harden whom he desires? Should God not have mercy on those he has formed and nourished and sustained in life? God specifies there are more than 120,000 persons made in his own image who don't know their right hand from left hand. They were morally and spiritually ignorant. And plus, they were a bunch of cattle, he says. I don't know about you, but those don't seem like very good reasons to me to have mercy on a people. Pleading ignorance doesn't go over too well with a cop when you're pulled over for speeding. Doesn't go over too well with the judge, with mom or dad. And cattle? You're going to spare a wicked city because there are a bunch of cattle there? Is this some sort of message from PETA? But you see, the mercy and grace of God sometimes is a bit irrational to us. It doesn't keep within the bounds like we think it should. God doesn't follow our rules. After all, it was Jesus himself who said to the Pharisees, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. And I think this is the part of the re- one part of the reason this book is left unresolved. As it is, we may wonder about Jonah. What happened to him after this? Did he finally get the lesson that God wanted to teach him? Did he stay in his own prison of unforgiveness and bitterness toward the Ninevites and toward God? Did he go on to be a prophet in Israel? Or was this the end of the line for him? We're left with this question about Jonah, but we're left with this question to Jonah. As we leave the book, we're left to question ourselves. Should God not pity those he has made in his own image and for his own glory? Should God not pity those who are yet morally and spiritually ignorant? We're left to wonder if God might spare Nineveh because of their ignorance and because they're a bunch of cattle, who else might he have the audacity to have mercy on? We're left to wonder if God's mercy and grace isn't limited to those who merit it or deserve it. Just who might he show mercy to? Just how far is God willing to go in showing mercy and grace to those who don't deserve it? And we get that answer in the cross of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Notice, Jonah was not the prophet he should have been. God called him and he ran away in rebellion And when God finally got Jonah to grudgingly obey, the whole city repents. And then Jonah's still mad. 
The only prophet in history who's ticked off that he had a successful ministry. But Jesus is the greater prophet of God. Who spoke the word of God perfectly and clearly. Who always obeyed the Father and fulfilled his commission all the way to the end. Jesus is the greater prophet who not only speaks God's word, but he is God's word to us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jonah spoke a word of judgment, and Nineveh repented, but Jesus speaks a better word to us in his life and death. For Jesus did not come to proclaim a word of judgment against sinners, but it was proclaimed that he had come to take the judgment away from sinners. Behold the Lamb of God, John says, who takes away the sins of the world. Brothers and sisters who are in Christ, who takes away your sins. And even Jesus himself said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In fact, Jesus was the reason why God was able to overlook the sins and ignorance of the Ninevites. Romans 3.23 and following. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, in His patience, He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How far is God willing to go to show mercy to undeserving sinners? Well, here we've got to be very careful with this answer. Because if we answer in a particular way, excluding those people we deem as unworthy or undeserving then we will inadvertently exclude ourselves from the mercy of God. The challenge of the book of Jonah is that we might see just how much we ourselves are in need of God's grace. For it's only when we see that, it's only when we see that we are undeserving and unworthy, that we can begin to extend compassion to others. That we can rejoice when others receive the favor and mercy of God. Jonah's a reminder of our own tendencies towards self-righteousness. Jonah's a reminder that the Lord doesn't play by our rules when it comes to salvation and that that is a very, very good thing. Salvation is of the Lord. He will show mercy on whom he will show mercy. He will have compassion on whom he will show compassion for that is just who he is. A God of mercy and grace. So take a moment and think to yourself about that person or that group of people who are far away from the Lord. They aren't necessarily seeking after God. They're going their own way. They're doing their own thing. They're the God of their own lives and they don't love the one true God. This is the person you would least expect to bow down in humility and repentance before Him. And then I want you to remember that the God of Jonah is the God of surprising mercies. It is a miracle 
that you bowed down before God in humility. It is a work of God's grace. Nothing that you earned, nothing that you were, you welled up within yourself. And do you think that God's mercy is limited so that he might not pour it out on that person, on those people? Are they too far gone, too set in their ways? Think again, brothers and sisters. Move toward them in compassion and then begin expecting the unexpected. Pray for surprising mercies. And then go about living in such a way that God might answer those prayers through your patient kindness to them, through your love to them, through your service to them, through your witness of Jesus Christ. And let's pray together.